traditional way of doing this FLP planning that we've been talking about probably doesn't work anymore. And so the normal, if you were going to set up a new FLP today, you would actually not. So if I was going to create an FLP today, I would not want any of the general partnership units initially. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Brent? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. We uh, we still have a puppy. Aww. Still, yeah. The little puppy. fluffball. <laughs> she is such a fluffball. She's a fluffball with teeth. It's like it's like, <laughs> it's like all fluff, and then there's teeth that come out of the fluff. <laughs> She's getting to be more, uh, more puppy-like. She was very like calm and timid and kind of scared of us initially. Now she's really warmed up to us and she's starting to just chew on everything that is within her vicinity, which I, I actually think is kind of fun. I like it. I love the puppy face. I don't mm-hmm. mind like the chewing and the like gnawing on you and all that stuff because I think it's kind of fun because they're so playful. Mm-hmm. And, and they have such wide swinging highs and lows. So it's like they go high, they're super high. They're just nuts. They're just going crazy. Five minutes later, biggest low. Mm-hmm. You know, they just like crash and they're just comatose on the floor somewhere. <laughs> it's so cute. Yeah. Aw, I missed that phase. That's so cute. <laughs> That's so much fun. And it only lasts for a little while too, right? In like three months, they're pretty much completely grown up and... That's right. No more puppy. That's right. They don't want anything to do with you other than food. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And to be let out. That's it. Once they realize that's your main, that's like the main value you add to the proposition, they're like, okay, I got it. (laughs) Yeah. Aw. How cute. Ours, our dogs are getting really spoiled where, um, so this last weekend, my husband smoked a 13 hour pork butt. So we've got some nice. pork. It was delicious. And yeah. the dogs are troopers. They know now when he smokes meat that if they, you know, keep them company and they power through the whole time, they are rewarded with whatever that delicious meat is. And so my husband had to put it out at like midnight the night so we could time it right and eat, you know, appropriate time the next day and so the dogs are out there at midnight with him they sit outside their way every time he goes and checks the temperature they're right there and then sure enough we, we ate and everything they're sitting there as we're shredding the meat and they got some for dinner and then tonight they got their normal dinner and they literally just look at it, <laughs> look at it. <laughs> oh no 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 human no we know that there's more meat and now they're very much spoiled and they did not want to eat their dinner tonight that's hilarious <laughs> that's that's usually what happens to our older dog uh when she's been fed too much from the table when there's been a little bit too much <laughs> handing food to her from the table then you you get her actual food out and the food bowl it just sits there yep <laughs> kind of like nah, not for me thanks yep know the good stuff's out there <laughs> she, knows. she knows there are alternatives <laughs> see but the thing is the thing is i figured out psychology I, I know how to break it because I know that starvation will force her to go back to her old food. <laughs> so if she doesn't get food from the table, 
she's going to get hungry and she's going to go straight back to that old food. I know I'm <laughs> going to win. I'm going to, I'm going to win the psychological battle. <laughs> See, that's when I usually cave because it's like, oh, they're just so cute. Okay. <laughs> Here's just a bite. And this is how my dogs are completely spoiled rotten. I can tell. <laughs> so, <laughs> so on a totally different topic, uh, Tonight, we are talking about family limited partnerships, FLPs, uh, if you're in the know. And FLPs have been a fairly popular way to do planning for uh, high net worth people, although I I will take to my grave that FLPs have way more utility outside of high net worth people than they're given. And I think they're underutilized, but I, I can make that case uh, at another time. But so for tonight, I thought maybe we would just at least give an overview of FLPs, you know, talk about what are they, how are they used, you know, traditionally, what's like, what's their use? And then finally, maybe talk about like, how does the IRS view these or how does the, how did the courts, the tax court, et cetera, uh, view these things? Because there's actually a lot of material on those topics. So it's important to understand the IRS point of view, the court point of view, if you're using an FLP. So uh, I think if we do that, we will have at least given a very nice intro to FLPs and at a later date or dates, we can get into the intricacies of some of these things and I can make my case for why they're underutilized. I like that plan. I like right. that plan a lot. All nice. right. Well, so family limited partnerships, um, what it basically is in a nutshell. So just think of it. It's a partnership among family members or, I mean, you could have third parties if you want. We've, we've seen that as well. Um, for our discussion, let's just say family members to keep it easy for tonight. So we've got a, a partnership among family members and it really just allows joint ownership of a family owned asset. Um, so the family members, they'll act as limited partners, and then they will act as general partners. So the general partners, they're going to have all of the daily management and the control over the asset. They're really the ones who are running the show. Our limited partners, they're the ones that have really minimal rights. And I mean minimal, very, very basic rights, hardly any power to deal with the, the family asset. And when we talk about a family limited partnership, you know, although we're using the actual word partnership, it really can be any type of regular entity. We've seen it with LLCs. Um, we've seen it with corporations, with actual partnerships, with limited partnerships. Just colloquially, we always just throw the term family limited partnership FLP around. Yeah, um, and, that's, and that's a good point because you do see these entities in all different varieties and they're all really FLPs like as a category, even though that there's like family limited partnerships as a sort of traditional animal uh, was a limited partnership. Uh, and we can, you know, we can dig into what that is, why that's different from anything else. But like that traditionally was a limited partnership, but the rules that these things play within pretty much apply broadly to almost any type of entity that's a business entity, corporations, any type of partnership, uh, limited liability companies. So yeah, that's totally true. We see them in every every single one of those types of uh, business entities and they all work in all of them. Although I think from my point of view, based on what modern laws are, uh, LLCs are the way to go, but that's my point of view. That's one person in the world's point of view. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I think it's really, you know, it, it provides just the flexibility that you can choose kind of what entity you're going to be, um, you know, using, go, creating this family limited partnership with. And like you said, it's just looking at, you know, if LLC provides you more liability protection um, or more more asset protection, then maybe that's the vehicle that you should be using for your FLP. Mm-hmm. So kind of how it works in too is so the, the family, they're going to take some type of assets. Uh, we've seen a whole bunch of different array of assets that you can kind of put into the family limited partnership. Let's just say, for example, it's a home, a residence, all right? It's going to put, let's put a million dollars in, a million dollar home into the family limited partnership. Then from there, the limited partnership can gift out those interests to family trusts. And that's kind of it in a very, very basic little nutshell right there. And like you said earlier, the family limited partnership, you know, it's, traditionally a a very useful structure and really a significant mechanism for minimizing gift and estate taxes. And we'll get into why that is in a bit. Um, But they also are so much more useful for, or so are really useful for other reasons, for that credit protection, um, for providing flexibility, um, for families who are just pulling assets together for just kind of just family control, joint ownership. These are great vehicles to use. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the the main reasons that you would do a family limited partnership is the ability to pool assets together and invest assets together. Because the thing that, at least in in my experience, this is not an empirical uh, study or anything, but in my experience, like the thing that tends to break up the family wealth is literally everybody breaking up the family wealth and going their own way. So to the extent that you can consolidate that wealth and manage it and invest it in a centralized location, you get these economies of scale in the investments that are beneficial to everybody that has an interest in the part in the partnership, you know, all the partners, all the family members who are members of the partnership. Like that's a huge, huge advantage. And one of the one of the ways it's an advantage is that the and we we uh, we talked about this a little bit with AJ Price uh, when he was on the podcast, but the it, the ability to qualify as what's called an accredited investor because accredited investors are allowed to invest in certain types of securities offerings um, that non-accredited investors would be precluded from investing in. So an accredited investor in the in the context of an entity is an entity, including an, an LLC, um, that has at least $5 million in it. Whereas if if instead you didn't have the entity and it was you're just looking at the individual, the individual would have to have a net worth of, uh, I think it's $5 million, it might be $2 million. Uh, now somebody will, I'm sure will correct me. Um, but if you imagine like the family money sort of in a pot and then you break up the family money, you just split it up into little pieces and people start spending it down and, and whatnot. Each individual family member themselves might not qualify as an accredited investor, but if you kept the money inside the entity, you potentially could qualify everybody who owns by extension as an accredited investor for investment purposes. So just, and that's just one example. That's not, you know, every example, but that's just like one example of the ways of like, when you keep the money together, you actually amplify the ability to do investments with that money and to create more growth in those investments. Yeah, that's a really, really good point you make. Um, and so I think, you know, too, it's important to kind of get into, I guess, some of the little bit of a details now on mm-hmm. how the family limited partnership works and how, you know, why it really does save on estate taxes and gift taxes. 
Um, so first, I think I, I like to think of family limited partnerships. It's just it's a way to make something valuable look like it's not so valuable anymore. And that's really just kind of the, the, the main point of it. So when you have a family limited partnership, um, you can make discounted gifts or say you're going to, instead of a gift, say you're going to do a sale of limited partnership interest instead to a family trust. So in a sale, how you make it look less valuable is through discounts. So what I mean by that is when you've got a family limited partnership, and let's say uh, you know you've got one family member who owns a one percent general partnership interest, and you've got the rest of the family members. They have the limited partnership interest. You've got um, a lack of control. You've got um, just lack of marketability, um, just kind of the illiquidity of the asset. Maybe you know when you think about all these things in the real market, people aren't going to pay less for that because you see of all these different factors that are going on. So you really, when you take an interest, like we talked about putting that million dollar house in, let's say you had three family members, it's not really a 33% interest when you kind of look at it, or that's not really the value. When you take all these discounts into effect, the actual value of what that family member holds, that limited partnership interest, is actually gonna be a lot less. So that's kind of how you take that really valuable asset and just make it look like it's really not so valuable in the uh, just eyes of like the IRS. Yeah, the IRS and also just sort of economic analysis mm -hmm. uh, yes. and and appraisal uh, and the concepts aren't really something that was invented by crafty lawyers. It was is something that exists in the market and in the appraisal industry that says, to your point, if you own an interest in an entity and your interest is a uh, non-controlling interest in the entity, then a third party in the open market would not pay full value for what you own. They would pay a discounted rate. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's exactly how you take that, like I said, that million dollar house, make it not so much a million dollar house anymore. So that kind of in a nutshell is how a family limited partnership works. And it's very basic form. That's what it is, and that's how it's so useful in terms of minimizing estate and gift taxes. But it, um, what's what's the word I want to think of? It's it's not foolproof, right? We you got to be very careful. <laughs> um, it's it's not this indestructible entity. Um, you do have to be very careful. The IRS does like to um, take a close look at family limited partnerships. Yes, yeah, as do the courts. Uh, under IRS challenge, there, there, and I would say there are there are historical ways that family limited partnerships were used, and then I think that has evolved through the way the IRS has viewed it and the way that the courts uh, have viewed the use of family limited partnerships. So very traditional family limited partnership, uh, as you you were pointing out, would be that you know older generation would gift away the limited partner units or limited partner interests and retain the general partner interests and the general partners control everything. So you've kind of given away the economic value, but you can you retained the control uh, as some people are wont to do. And that historically has been okay. Um, there are a couple of concepts that the IRS looks at and that the courts look at. So the main concept is a 
some tax rules that colloquially are called the string provisions. And what the string provisions say is if you make a gift of something in trust or otherwise, and you retain an interest, certain types of interest in that gifted property, that when you die, even though you don't own that property, you've gifted it away because you had retained some interest in that property, you'll, you'll be treated as if you own it when you die and you have to pay a state tax as if you owned that asset. That's the the way these string provisions work. There's one in particular uh, that tends to be the real, the real problematic one, which is section 2036 of the Internal Revenue Code. Section 2036 has uh, two subsections and then has sub subsections. So there's subsection A and subsection B. Subsection B deals with voting stock in corporations, sort of set that aside. Subsection A is where the real action is uh, in the courts and with the IRS. And subsection A1 says that if you retain the right to possession, enjoyment, and use of the income of the property, then the IRS will pretend that you still own it. So let's say, uh, Rachel, I gifted property into a trust for your benefit, but I retained the right to receive income from the trust. Section 2036A1 would say, when I die, I will be treated as if I own what I put into the trust for you, mm-hmm. even though I don't own it anymore. It's in the trust. That's a that's an easy example. That's like a direct interest. But what has happened is the IRS through treasury regulations and the courts through court cases have said, well, all right, Yes, we get the direct case, but even if you have the right uh, indirectly, even if that right is not legally enforceable, but just in practice, you have the right to enjoy that property uh, because of some unwritten arrangement, an implied agreement, they say, uh, between you and somebody else who maybe controls the entity like the trustee of the trust, um, then they will still attribute that asset to you when you die, even though you don't have a legal right or a direct legal interest in the asset. So let me give you an example. So let's say I created FLP. I gift limited partnership interests into your trust. I do not have any interest in your trust now. I, according to the trust document, I can't get any money out of your trust. However, the FLP continues to pay all of my mortgage payments and it pays my my uh, loans on the loans that I took out for my business and it pays for a bunch of my other personal expenses. Okay, So I have gifted away most of the FLP to you, but the FLP is still paying for me, even though I'm not legally entitled to those payments because it's making those payments to me. The IRS and the courts have said, yeah, that's an implied agreement to retain this interest, therefore will cause that to be included in your estate. Okay, that's that's a pretty egregious example. But those sorts of like personal use without any sort of adequate compensation to the trust would be an implied agreement type scenario. Then, uh, and that's a very high level explanation of A1. It's very, very (laughs) complex area. Just trust me, there's like a slew of cases um, and IRS rulings on it. But then under A2 of 2036, uh, you'll be treated as owning the asset that you gifted away if you alone or in conjunction with another person have the right to determine who can possess, enjoy, and use the property or the income from the property. 
And there was a there was a historical case in 1972 in the Supreme Court where the Supreme Court uh, allowed a person to make gifts of stock in their corporation. The corporation had other non-family member shareholders in it. Uh, this person made gifts of the stock into a trust. The trust had a, a bank as the trustee, and this person retained the right to vote the stock, they could veto um, investment decisions for the trust, and they could remove and replace the corporate trustee with another corporate trustee. Okay, all those things sound like the ability to uh, uh, determine alone or in conjunction with somebody else who gets to enjoy the the use and possession of that property. And the IRS made that argument and the Supreme Court said, no, that's not true because the statute says you have to have the right to do it. And this person did not have the right to do it because they owed a fiduciary duty to the minority shareholders and the corporate trustee owed a fiduciary duty to the trust beneficiary. So they couldn't just do the transfer or the, the gift givers uh, bidding, plus there's a board of directors and all the shareholders could really do is elect the board of directors. They couldn't direct, tell the board of directors what to do with the assets of the corporation and when to make dividend distributions, for example. Uh, and the board of directors owed a fiduciary duty to all the shareholders as well. So therefore, these fiduciary duties sort of override this section A2. All right. So a lot of people took that as that clears the way for doing this traditional FLP planning where you would, I would gift away my limited partnership interest to you, Rachel. I would retain the general partnership units. And because I owe a fiduciary duty to you, I can't just do whatever I want. Therefore, this Byram case saves the day. And there were actually uh, IRS rulings to that effect saying, yes, that's true. And all of that worked until 2003 when the tax court came out with a case called Strangey. And in the Strangey case, everybody involved was a related party. And the general partner and the person who set up the family limited partnership was the agent on a power of attorney for an elderly individual. And they basically put all of his assets in this FLP, and then they gifted away the FLP interests. And, and in that case, the, the court said, look, there's no real fiduciary duty here. You're all related. You're just the agent for the deceased person. You're standing on both sides of the transaction. There's no real fiduciary duty. So you don't get the benefit of Byram. And basically, um, that has been the way that the court has been ruling recently. The two cases came out 2017 and 2018, the, the Powell and the Cahill case that basically said, if you have the ability very mechanically in any way to vote on making distributions from the part the FLP or to vote on who can transfer units in the FLP or to vote on when you liquidate the FLP, then having that ability by yourself or together with any other party will trip up on this uh, 2036A2. So that was a very long-winded way to set up the punchline, which is the traditional way of doing this FLP planning that we've been talking about probably doesn't work anymore. And so the normal, if you were going to set up a new FLP today, you would actually not, so if I was going to create an FLP today, I would not want any of the general partnership units initially. I would not want to be a general partner. I would want you to be the general partner. You know, you buy in, you be the general partner. And if I'm a limited partner, I would want zero voting power in the partnership. 
because having that voting power was really bad in Strangey and Powell and Cahill. Uh, and so just so everybody understands, like there was this traditional way of doing FLPs. It has had a very useful purpose. Uh some of which were tax driven, some of which were non-tax driven. All of those purposes still exist. It's just the way you have to structure FLPs today because of the way the IRS and the courts have attacked the structure is different than it was in the past. So I think I'll leave it at that. I, 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 that's a very meaty topic. We could like go on and on and on in excruciating detail about every every element of what I just described, but that's a very high level overview of the status of FLPs. <laughs> No, I think you hit the nail on the head. And I think it's um, just like you said, the punchline is, is just you have to be really careful when you structure these things. Um, you know, in the the recent cases in Cahill, like the court doesn't get into exactly how much control they need to see. They don't give you that line of distinction. So it's you have to be really careful, like you said, if you know, you got to make sure that you retain zero control, zero power. So when we're doing this, you know, we're looking at um, the power to amend the family limited partnership agreement. We don't want any of those controls on there. Um, again, no discretionary um, power over distributions, like really analyzing these things, per, you know, each line by line to making sure that, um, you know, this that there is no control in, in our client's hands so that we can avoid the string provisions here. Yeah, and I should point out, uh, there is an enormous exception to all of these rules, and that is yes. if if the transfer is a bona fide sale for full and adequate consideration in money or money's worth. That's the language in the set in the regulations, uh, basically meaning if I sell, say, limited partnership or general partnership interest to you and you pay me the fair market value back for those general partnership interests, uh, that will not fit within the 2036 uh, parameters, okay? It's an exception to these 2036 rules. So there is that exception, but um, if if someone is trying to make gifts because they're trying to make use of their, say, lifetime gift tax exemption or the generation skipping transfer tax exemption, doing a sale is not the way to do that because you do the sale, you get something back. So if you wanna make a gift, then you have to dance the dance with these 2036 rules. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a really good point. Um, I do want to hit on real quick on the the bona fide sale exception mm -hmm. because it it really is such a strong exception. If you're okay with getting something back with actually you know doing that sale, we're not trying to um, you know work with the exemption amounts right now. And I think actually you gave me these numbers before, but it's 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 really such a powerful exception. Um, we're out of like the the 20 something, I think it's 22 family limited partnership cases that the IRS has chosen to litigate. So these are cases, you know, the IRS thought are, are good cases to bring in front of the courts. Out of 22 of those cases, 14 of them, um, the court held that the transfers to the limited partnership, those were going to be qualified for the bona fide sale exception. So that just really shows how powerful this exception is in getting over the 2036 string provisions. Um, it's really useful if, again, you do want to actually have a sale um, and not try and use your exemption amounts right now. 
Yes, and I have to say that that was research I borrowed from somebody else, but I think that's accurate, mm-hmm. and uh, and the and it's because of the power of that exception that it's it's a difficult hurdle for the IRS to climb to overcome the exception. The other thing is is the the exception will apply to the extent that fair market value has been paid. Mm-hmm. So uh, even where they're even where, say, somebody didn't pay enough money, they don't get dinged for having, sorry, if they don't receive enough money, they don't get dinged for having received the money they did. They get dinged for the excess for which they didn't get fair compensation. And there's a, I mean, that's that in and of itself is a very complex conversation, as you know, <laughs> too, about, about how do you deter- determine uh, what is fair compensation. But yeah, it's, it's a good point. I mean, I think, let's say I was going to do a new FLP today. Okay. Uh, first of all, I would still structure it the way that we were just describing, where I would not retain any of these string provisions. Then, if I was going to make a transfer that wasn't a gift, I would do a sale. So I would hit both pieces. I would have, have would have avoided the initial issue of retaining a string provision and then sold it to you just in case to make sure that uh, I've really broken the strings and I'm not going to fit within those rules. I think that's in an ideal world what somebody would do. But yeah, it's it's a very complex area. It's it's difficult to explain to clients. It's a little bit out of the ordinary. I know it it sounds like it's made up. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't sound real, uh, but it very much is real. And uh, it's a, it is a very important area. It And it maybe sounds like an area that like, Surely nobody knows anything about this. Trust me, there are some people at the IRS who know a lot about this <laughs> and who are really keyed into these issues. Not everybody at the IRS, but a very narrow group of them are. Uh, and when it matters, it matters a whole heck of a lot. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, any uh, any final words? I think that hits it before or without us getting into the nitty gritty for about two hours. <laughs> 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 yes, uh, without uh, without ma- making a two to six hour long podcast on family limited partnerships. Well, we'll we'll uh, we'll I'm sure have more conversations about these things in the future. But that's there you go uh, for all our listeners. That's your FLP overview. Now you know you can uh, you can entertain everybody the next time that you're able to go to parties. <laughs> yep, definitely. All right, thanks again, Rachel. Yeah, thank you. Hey listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.